Hey everyone, this is Kaz and welcome to this episode of Stepping Out. Today, I interviewed the amazing Amelia Mariette. Amelia sent me her non-fiction book to read called Walking into Alchemy, The Transformative Power of Nature. And I have to say, I've not been able to put it down since. Amongst her many roles, Amelia has worked for the MOD, been a museum curator, scholar of Shakespeare, playwright, lecturer, blogger, radio presenter, and of course, author. Amelia talks us through her story about her journey from frustration, depression, and being broke, to one of moving to finding love, living in Austria, and walking in nature. She describes her book as a love story, a nature story, and a book about art, culture, and the wider world. It is also well and truly about the benefits of walking as a way to improve mental health and well-being. So as you can imagine, I couldn't wait to talk to her, as it really is a beautiful and inspiring book. So go for a walk, take some time for you, and listen to the chapters on Amelia's life. A huge welcome to Stepping Out, Amelia, and thank you for agreeing to talk to me about your lovely story. So can you describe to me where you're talking from today? I'm uh, talking to you from southern Austria um, and it's sort of, I, we're about sort of three hours from Venice and about two and a half hours from Vienna. Wow, <laughs> what a lovely place to be. It's really lovely to speak to somebody from a different country as well. Um, but you've had, what's your weather like? You've got lots of snow there presumably at the moment. Yes, we've got a huge amount of snow, which is very unusual. Uh, I should have said that we're actually in the Carinthia or the Laventhal Valley, which is what I also should have said. Um, we, we've got more snow than we've had in the sort of nearly six years that I've been here. And lots of people are saying, oh, it's like the snow we used to have, you know, years and years ago. Um, we've had about eight or nine weeks of snow that's lying on the ground. And it's in some places sort of, you know, maybe half a metre deep. So it's and it's gorgeous. I mean, we've mostly been having blue sky and there's snow and so it's kind of like the most perfect lockdown weather really <laughs> wow that sounds great like we get excited when we have two days of snow here but you don't have that there it's too cold isn't it was it minus nine you were saying earlier um it was minus 12 in the night um and um today i was walking partly because i knew i was going to talk to you i thought i should do my my big walk as i call it my favorite walk um and um it was it was about minus nine and it was it, it, it was fine on the way up and actually you get very hot of course um yeah. because of the effort of it all i'm wearing too many layers i always wear too many layers and then i get to the top and i think oh i'm cold now <laughs> but it's all part of it. it's kind of like you know, that slight suffering part of walking i kind of quite enjoy do you know what i mean yeah i do so do you do you have like something that you head back for so you say um right, that's it, my hot chocolate's waiting for me, or is it a kind of something a bit stronger? Like, how do you how do you reward yourself when you come back from that kind of thing? You're absolutely right. It's it's a lot to do with that. It's it's absolutely wonderful to go out and, and walk, particularly, I think, to walk alone, to walk long distances. But there is something really wonderful about knowing you, you're going home. And uh, always, it's, it, as much as possible, I try to sort of run in and go straight into the bath because it's such a treat, you know, with the candles and everything. Yeah. Um, Sometimes, I'll be honest, have a little glass of wine in the bath or a little beer, but today I just wanted a cup of tea, I thought. Nothing better. That was lovely. And I've got my lovely partner is all 
was was also waiting for me and uh, she uh, she made me the tea and said you know made sure I was all right so that's and of course that's the other thing if somebody's waiting for you that's kind of even better isn't it, it? is isn't it it's love I always say it's lovely to go out but it's it's equally as lovely to come home and uh, you know when you've got the fire on and everything else so oh really really nice I'm just trying to envisage that now but the reason I wanted to speak to you is because you sent me your book to read completely out of the blue. I don't even actually don't even think I've asked you why you sent it to me. <laughs> um, I sent it to you because you uh, wrote on, I think it was the One Million Women Walking page. Uh, it may have been a different one. I'm not quite sure. Um, and you said that you your business, um, if you don't mind me saying this, was kind of having a bit of a tough time with COVID. And uh, I think various things that you wanted to do were not kind of working out. And so you were going to move into a new di- new direction. And I'm sure I saw the word walking there. Yes. And um, and I'm I sort of. I just I felt sorry for you really and I thought how awful that you've had this experience but how kind of wonderful that you're moving more towards walking and of course now walking is is huge I mean partly because you know it's free and it's really good for you and it's kind of captured the zeitgeist I suppose and I wrote my book um I did my walk uh which is what I based my book on in 2016 and it, it feels like a long time ago in some ways but in other ways it's absolutely it's more relevant now than when I wrote it. And I thought, well, maybe if I send it to you, it would, um, I don't know, maybe in some ways inspire you a little bit or yeah. help you a little bit. Or, And I just felt that it was the right thing to do. I, I, it's funny, really, because I don't do that very often, um, occasionally. And it just, I just, the second I saw it, I thought, I'm just, I'm going to send Kaz this, my book. I said, I think it, maybe, maybe it would be nice for you in some way (laughs) yeah and it was and and I was gonna say it was like it was such a meant to be moment for me because I absolutely loved it in fact loving it because I haven't quite finished it yet and I blame that on um lockdown um parenting um but it really resonated with me on so many levels it was just I mean I immediately ordered a proper copy I have to tell you um (laughs) it's very hard to read off the screen so I was like no 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 I'm gonna buy this yeah I'm gonna get it I'm gonna get it and I'm well into it so thank you for that and we'll talk about the book obviously if that's okay a little bit later but as I think the lead up to you writing it and of course that story is in the book is so captivating in itself that I just wanted to ask you go back a little bit if I can and just ask you about your um your upbringing briefly because everyone that I speak to on the topic of walking there's usually some kind of seed that's planted at some point to encourage what they do in adult life so I'm interested to know about yours and how it led to all the things that you're interested in um so where were you brought up and and did you have any idea what you wanted to do from a young age um, I grew up, um, I was actually born in Wales, um, but my parents moved from there and I grew up primarily in Malvern in Worcestershire. And of course, that's the most beautiful part of the world. And there are the Malvern Hills quite famously. And of course, even if you aren't a big walker, there's something about living somewhere that is known as a walking destination. And when you look up at the hills from almost anywhere you are in the outlying areas, you know, Upton on Seven or wherever you might be looking up towards the hills, you kind of know that probably somebody's up there walking um it's kind of part of the the ether if you like so and I and I do know that my my father was always a great nature lover and a a, a terrifically fond of birds and he 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 was um, a twin and he, he and his twin brother used to wander around Surrey where they came from and identify birds one would hold the book and the other one would identify the birds you know so 
basically if you want to be a bird watch you've got to be an identical twin in my opinion um <laughs> that seems to help a lot and then it was new then i mean the first sort of bird watching books that came out for ordinary people came out in around about 1935 and my dad mm. was born in 1925 so they it was a bit like train spotting for them i think so i always knew that my father had this passion if you like for birds and and to, to a degree also for nature in general and we would do the you know the the um sunday afternoon tramp along the malvern hill um and also um i went to stay with a family um from school and they walked everywhere and they had a car but they walked everywhere which i must admit thought was quite strange at the time it was probably about eight mm -hmm. and um we would walk to go and buy milk and walk to buy bread and and it was a long way you know and uh, and then one day they said we're going to walk for pleasure i mean they didn't say that exactly but I thought, what? Well, why are we going? Are we going to collect something or buy something? And I realised that that wasn't the point. And I again thought this was a bit strange because they didn't walk sort of for half an hour or an hour. They walked for like, you know, five hours or something ridiculous. And I I wasn't very keen, I don't think. But then when I we came back, I thought, you know what? That was kind of amazing. It was like going to another world because four or five hours for a child is a huge amount yeah. of time. And... Um, and it kind of so I think that sowed a bit of a seed. As I say, I didn't enjoy it at the time. But afterwards I <laughs> That's I, a I long way. <laughs> it was a long way. It's like please be going now. I, I don't think there was any choice. They were a little I'll be honest, they were military about it. They were like, You're going, whether you like it or not. Yeah, and yeah. I think they had about five or six children. So there's uh, there was a lot of us. And uh, off we went. And um, as I say, when I came back and I went back home, I said to my parents, So I'm gonna be a mountaineer now and they were like, Yes, darling, of course you are. <laughs> and um, we used to go and I used to go mountaineering on the Malvern Hills you know which is about three three rocks probably yeah um and not at all dangerous but I I really like that idea and I think that did set as you say sow a seed a little bit um and then you know when I was working really hard I would look forward to going for a bit of a Sunday walk at one point I had a, a partner who loved to walk again longer distances and I do all the map work and everything so I didn't I'm no good at that so I just had to kind of try follow along behind you know mm. um, and I did like that but on the other hand I, I wasn't I wasn't really involved if you know what I mean I just kind of went so all the time that I was walking up to the point where I came here I was sort of doing it because other people said it, it's a good idea and it'll probably be nice and I did enjoy it but I, I don't think I was immersed in it and that's quite different. I think when you suddenly become you get the bug and you're you know deciding where to walk and how long it's going to be and what you should wear and what you should take to eat and you know and, and how safe you need to be you're you're really it becomes like a project doesn't mm -hmm. it um, so I think that's probably my story really and uh, and and also I think it's just another way to kind of try and be healthy and fit you know I I I'm not particularly healthy and fit, but I try, you know what I mean? And I, I don't like running and I don't like going to the gym. I quite like swimming. And walking really doesn't harm you. It's no. pretty hard to hurt yourself when you're walking unless you do something a bit daft, you know, fall in a hole or something. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was having this conversation the other day with somebody who was talking about um, uh, running and uh, she also does a lot of walking. And and we had this conversation and I said, oh, I just can't get into running. I've tried it so much over the years. And I even tried a bit of trail running at one point, which I kind of enjoyed. And then I thought, I'm just, it's just too risky to injure, injure myself. And everybody that was coming into the studio, most of them, a large percentage were saying, oh, I'm, I'm only here because my doctor said I can't run anymore. Or, mm. um, oh, I've really yeah. torn the ligaments in my knee. I did a marathon or blah, blah, blah. 
And I thought, no, 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 no. But you're right. There's something about walking. And often it's when you come back that you realise how immersed you were in it. You know, when you walk through the door and then suddenly your real life kind of, you know, clicks in with the day to day stuff. And you think, I was a totally way with the pixies there. I I didn't even (laughs) realise I was. So it's an absorption thing, isn't it? It really does get you. It does. It does. It does. And, and I actually had a knee operation when I was um, 14. Um, and, and I think that any kind of, you know, running or skiing or anything like that would be too hard for me anyway. And I'm a bit too scared to try it, to be honest. So um, and, and actually, my knee was quite painful at the beginning when I started to walk and, and it's, it has improved it. So that's another thing that's quite nice to do something that's that's quite that's helpful. For yeah, low impact. Well. Yeah, yeah. That's the word I'm looking for, or two words. Um, low impact. Um, <laughs> I think that's really good. And uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I approve of that because I'm, I've got a very low pain threshold. Right. <laughs> I don't want to hurt myself. You know, I don't mind going, but I don't want to come back and, and, and ache for, for a week or yeah. hurt myself. And nobody wants hassle. Nobody wants that. And you don't want to be better. I mean, I'm, I fall a little bit in between because I do like a bit of technical wear and I do like, um, you know, putting my vest on with all my little gadgets and things. But that's only because I've built it up over time. And it's all just things that, you know, I did a did a podcast recently on what I pack when I go off for a little walk um, in my little vest. And, you know, it's things like a toothpick and stuff. But that's just that's just because it's just built up over time. And and that's just what I take. And I don't really sort of see it as a right. I'm going to put all this equipment on. It's just things that will make my journey easier and more comfortable. And and that's precisely what it is. And and I completely understand what you say about map reading, because I really need to get onto this a bit better. Um, And if without an app, sometimes I I, will, I wouldn't be here. I'd probably still be out in the middle of the woods somewhere from about three months ago because I can't, I I never carry maps with me. I just have everything on my phone and I've got, I've got some very good pathway apps, but your walk, obviously you, you know them very, very well. Um, So I suppose that, and obviously you must do a bit of exploring as well in your area because it's just beautiful over there, isn't it? It, I do that, and also now I've, I'm not very good at maps, but I'm, I'm quite a visual person. I've, I've realised over the years, and um, one of the things I can do now is I can, I can sort of think, ah, oh, I think if I go down there, it'll probably link to that mm. part of the wall. Oh, I love that, else. don't and you? Yeah, I love that, and, and I also think this is, this reminds me of the sort of neural pathways in your head. You know, mm. there's this kind of landscape in, in front of you. And you're connecting that with with what's going on inside your head in some mystical way. Mystical for me, anyway, because oh, I don't yeah. quite understand how it works. And and actually, that's kind of exciting, particularly when you come out where you roughly where you think you might, and you think, ah. And of mm. course, I can. My partner's from here. She grew up here. Um, mm. she was born here. And I could say to her, I think that leads to such and such. And then she said, Oh, I don't think so. And then of course it does. And she's like, You know better than I do. Uh, yeah. That's I, it. Yeah, because I walk, I don't drive very much. And she. So I think sometimes a little bit miffed by that. <laughs> other times, like kind of like when when we're out, she'll say, "Oh, I mean, ask Amelia; she knows," and she's secretly yeah. quite proud of me. I think, um, and I enjoy that because sometimes I'm wrong, of course, and I end up thinking, "Oh no, this is another two hours away from oh, where I thought I was." <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, and then you just have to suck it up and go, "Well, that's it. I've made my bed. I've got to walk another two hours to get back." Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, so now now it's winter. I I do. I must admit, I'm a bit more careful now. I I do make mm. sure that I have. I've just bought some snow chains for my oh. boots, which are oh. very very exciting. 
hellishly difficult to put on. And of course, you're always trying to put them on at the iciest part. So that's actually interesting in itself. But I take hot chocolate and a few things with me. And I always have my, you know, my, my medical card. And I, I do also take a battery uh, charger because oh, yes. I noticed that um, at low temperatures, my the phone, even if it says 50 percent, it just dies. Oh, yeah. It doesn't, yeah, yeah. doesn't like the cold. So I have to uh, make sure I, I I learned that sort of by trial and error. I actually take two battery chargers with me because also that they, they also don't they like go. the cold. So. Yeah, yeah. You only make that mistake once, don't you? <laughs> you do. You do. And and of course, then you realise that you that would actually be pretty scary, I think, to be. I mean, Ooh, I'm, yeah. I'm usually walking around about. 1200 to 1500 meters high so it's not very high i mean you know it's not i'm not it's not heroic but it's high enough to be a little bit frightening scary for me yeah i think so so uh, and also you know what you know katie says to me don't like don't don't be silly don't please don't do anything daft and you know you have a responsibility for to other people don't you not yeah. to not to make your life and their lives complicated exactly <laughs> yeah so yeah you say so you don't take any flares with you then <laughs> i think i'd be tempted <laughs> I, I i should i i've got some 1970s flares in my wardrobe but, sorry <laughs> very bad joke i think um, they should bring them I back should, i should say those i should do a bit of saturday night fever while i'm up there um yeah i think maybe i'll think about flares i'll consider it i'll make a note yes if you would i wouldn't be so worried then right um i might consider them for myself just for fun um <laughs> right so i'm going to hop forward now and i want to talk about your love of shakespeare because you read um for an ma in shakespeare is that right and i just I just find that so fascinating because mainly because I only pretty much managed to haul myself through Macbeth at school and it didn't really stick with me back then. I think probably at the time we had a few supply teachers and it didn't really go in. But I've since seen a couple of plays uh, which have really moved me, actually. So I now understand what all the fuss is about. But what moved you to do that? Because before that, you were working for the Ministry of Defence, was that right, in, in radar simulation? I was, and that, that, the main reason for me working in radar simulation at the MOD is because Malvern has uh, this huge, I did have when I worked there, it was called the Defence Research Agency. Actually, it was called Royal Signals and Radar Establishment, which became the Defence Research Agency, and now it's called even something different again. Um, and when I was there, I think there were two and a half, three thousand people, and basically it was the only place to work in Malvern, really. Um, and I went there from school. Um I just, you know, started off at the bottom, really. And uh, the great thing about working for the MOD, uh, which I now realise and have realised over the intervening years, that they were incredibly good at allowing people to move up and also very good with um, women working there and uh, getting promoted. So I went in as something called a temporary general hand, which basically meant they could make you do anything. Um, I had all kinds of weird jobs and uh, it wasn't particularly enjoyable, I'll be honest. And then I actually wrote a letter because I was about 18, 19, and wrote a letter to somebody, you know, much higher up than me and saying, you know, I really think I could do better than this. I'm such a cheeky little thing. <laughs> well, big, I'm quite tall, actually. Um, and I said, uh, and and you know what, I've got I've got six O levels or whatever I had, you know, seven. Yeah. It was a really crazy thing to do. And they wrote back and said, yes, we think you're right. Good, speak up, yeah. <laughs> actually, would you like to go, there's going to be some interviews for, um, um, 
administrative assistant um, coming up in a few months time. And if you put your name down and you go, you go and you pass the interviews. OK, good for you. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, I did. And I passed and they, they said, we're going to make you an administrative officer, which wow. was higher up again. And I was I thought, oh, OK, so I, I did. And I please don't put me in the uh, anything to do with maths or accounting. And of course, they put me in the in the bill paying department. And it was awful, really, because I couldn't do maths. But anyway, it was fine. And then uh, one day they said to me, um, would anybody like or, or to the whole room, actually? And there was about 30 of us, mostly women. Would any of you like to work in computers? And nobody put their hand up. And and then the boss said, um, you get £1,500 a year uh, bonus. And at the time, I think I was earning about three or 4000 This was in the 80s, you know. And I put my hand me, I want to do it, I said. <laughs> <laughs> because I thought, well, you know, well, it's probably be fun. And that's quite a lot of money. And I don't like working here anyway. I had lovely friends. And I really enjoyed the office uh, side of it. But the work was hard for me. And so I went into computers. And I was really full of myself because I got the job. And uh, then I discovered that the, 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 I don't mean in this any nasty way, but the person, the other person who went for the job, there was only one person that went for it other than me. And I had, he only had one arm. And the reason why they couldn't employ him, and he was much better qualified than me and probably would have done the job better than me, but you couldn't lift the disc platters out at that time without two arms. Right. Because they were so heavy. I mean, the computer I looked after had, um, less capability than my mobile phone's got now but it was absolutely huge it was like one of these things in a film you know with the whizzing um disc drives and so on and take take reels and so I did that for quite a while and I learned a huge amount and then I thought I think I should take a degree and the MOD paid for me to do open university degree they gave me some time off and I actually did arts and history and uh, Shakespeare and my boss said you know, I mean, I don't mind. He said, because one day you probably leave and you'll go out into the world and you'll do something good. Yeah. And he said, I don't mind that. How, how nice boss. is that? Yeah. He was so nice. I, I must find him, actually. I think he's probably still around somewhere. <laughs> but what made you read Shakespeare? Did you did you already have that kind of, you know, why? Why did you go into Shakespeare? Well, that, the reason for that was actually bloody-mindedness. I wasn't allowed at school to study Shakespeare because I was no good at maths. And the streaming used to be uh, the case that you had to be in the A stream to do things. And they didn't, they always streamed you like across the board. So if you were very good at right. English but bad at maths, that didn't matter because you had to be in like the B or the C uh, group. And oh, so that's I, crazy, it, it? it was really crazy. And I think, again... <laughs> I realised I come over as being quite obnoxious, but anyway, um, I I said to my teacher in the English class, I think that's really unfair. I think I was 11 or 12. And I said, uh, it's like comparing chalk and cheese because they both begin with ch, I said to him. And he looks at me like, what are you talking about? And I, I I couldn't get across my... My opinion, you know, because I didn't have yeah. the vocabulary for it. I said, but it's so unfair. I really want to study Shakespeare. Please let me. And he said, you can't. You're not clever enough. You're not allowed to. <laughs> he just said it just like Isn't that, you know, and shut up and sit down. And I said, you know, it's, it's just not fair. You're kind of not making it fair for, for, for everyone. And and I stood up, I remember. He was very tall and I was really afraid of him, but I did it. And But I didn't, I didn't win. So, of course, I started, when I started my degree, I said immediately, um, I, I really, I'm going to study Shakespeare. 
and I, I remember somebody saying, oh, it's going to be quite hard. You've never studied a play ever. And I said, I haven't, but I'm, I'm going to do it. And I, I found it incredibly difficult at the beginning. We started with the history plays and I found it very hard. And um, but you know what? I um, I just got on with it and I was determined and I wanted to prove this teacher wrong. I mean, and I hadn't seen him. I never seen him since. But in my mind, he was somebody I needed to to prove to be wrong, you know. Yeah, and, and because you sound really creative, I mean, obviously, having read some of your book and um, read a bit about you, 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 you I think, I, oh, I don't know where you put this, but I think you said somewhere that everything that is connected with what you do is about communication. And I, again, I mean, I think you and I, we're quite similar in a lot of ways, because everything I read, I thought, yeah, yeah, I, I feel like that as well. Everything seems to just come to me in um or or I have a job and it ends up being in some form communication so mm. obviously you know Shakespeare it, um appeals to your creative side and, and all the other things that you've done in your career because after that you went on to be a curator in museums as well so because it was at the Gustav Holst birthplace museum first right and then tour abbey in devon that's right and again that was a little bit of an accident there's always a, a sort of element of um something being fortuitous i think or being in the right place at the right time i, I really really loved doing my ma in shakespeare studies instructed upon avon i wanted to teach actually but then i realized that the it's very crowded at the top in shakespeare studies and um and i knew that that would be extremely hard to get into um and i'm working at the royal Shakespeare Company just part-time when I did my degree uh, my MA and I, I wanted to also do a PhD but at this point it began to get very expensive and I thought well, I'm not sure that I'll be able to go into academia which was was a shame I wanted to but I, I figured that you know you have to know when to draw the line I think um, and um, I also thought uh, well, maybe I could, you know, go into theatre to do directing, which I would really like to do. Again, incredibly difficult to get into. So I ended up working at the Royal Shakespeare Company and they asked me, would I like to work a few hours in the, in the uh, museum at the Royal Shakespeare Company, which is and was a costume museum. And I thought, well, OK. Um, and I thought, actually this is kind of fun because you get to you know look at the old programs and the history of the actors and looking at costumes and props and and wow. it was really exciting and looking at prompt books which is you know the book that the the kind of bible for every production there's this thing called a prompt book um and it gives all the details of every everything that happened in that production and uh, there used to be like cut, cut and paste and with pencil on and notes on them and they were all done by hand and now they're probably all done on, on a computer but um and the 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 shakespeare um center library um in stratford keeps all of them from the rsc and i could look at them you know and um and we would exhibit them and, and i said to, again <laughs> me being cheeky again I said to the, the curator <laughs> maybe I could do an exhibition if if you let me and I'd I've got an idea already because did you know it's going to be the 125th anniversary of the founding of the original theatre and he said is it oh that's funny he said the press office haven't mentioned it and uh, and they said oh 125 years who cares you know 100 150 but I said well you know it's an anniversary and everybody likes an anniversary so I said maybe, maybe we could do something so I um I said let's just choose the most famous place you know let's not make it hard for ourselves so use Hamlet and so on um and so I dragged out of the archives everything to do with uh, four different plays altogether and there were four spaces so I said let's call it four by four 
I think my idea is, is that somebody would, would sponsor us like Land Rover, but of course that didn't happen. <laughs> and he said, yeah, I think I think that's a good idea, but it's not going to happen. And, uh, and he gave me £6,000 to do this exhibition, which I now realise wow. was a huge amount of money. And he let me go and talk with a designer, and um, which, again, I'd never done before. And I was completely in the dark, actually. And I learned, you know, had to learn very fast. And I, I really, really enjoyed it. And I said, this is kind of exciting because there's a real performance element to exhibition work. And so I, I sat there one day and I thought, well, when this is over, I'm just going to go back to just basically sitting on the door selling tickets for the museum. And it's not very exciting, really. So I think I'm, he's not going to let me do another one. <laughs> uh, he said, you know, it's great, Amelia, but we, we can't we haven't got that much money. So we do exhibitions maybe every few years. You know, we don't we don't keep on changing. We, we don't have enough money for that. The money goes into theatre, you know, uh, for the productions, not for us. So I, uh, I I sort of searched around on the internet. And at this point, we had dial-up. And I, I used to go home and the computer would dial-up, you know, before we had uh, um, uh, really fast I internet. Uh, I sound like a thousand years old, I know. And um, and I found this job at the Hulse Birthplace Museum. And I applied for it. And, uh, and I got it. And I told them. I was very honest. I said, you know, I'm extremely inexperienced. But, you know, I've worked for the MOD. I've done my degree while I was working full time. I've done this work mm. for the RSC. I'm, you know, got kind of by this point a, a fair amount of qualifications. If you give me a go, I'll try it. And they said, you know what, yeah. we, we've got we won't be able to pay you very much. We've got hardly any money. We've got nothing to lose, really. <laughs> so they took me. <laughs> yeah, which is. And that was it. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I was there for three or four years. And I and again, you know, I said, um, perhaps we should do a bit of a redevelopment so we put in a shop and we got new cabinets and I tried to you know get a little bit of a marketing thing going because the whole museum was just so not known at all um, and growing up in Malvern where the Elgar Museum is that was kind of famous but the Hulse Museum isn't and I said you know I don't see why Elgar should be more famous than Hulse let's kind of raise his profile a bit um, yeah, big him up. Yeah, a bit. come on, he's lovely. He's such a nice man, mm. and he he was so modest. And I think that's also interesting because he was so modest. I don't think he's so well known. And Elgar, everybody would would confess to this that he was kind of quite a vain man, and he liked to big himself up. And so we know about him, you know. So I found that interesting. Um, so anyway, I went uh, and I did that, and then um, I, I, really the museum was is quite poor. I've been fundraising for them recently, uh, not that successfully, but I do my best for the Holst Museum. I, I always, they always have a place in my heart, and Holst is one of my favourite composers, and, and always will be. And but I said, you know, I think you probably can't really afford to keep a curator at the moment, and they agreed that it was hard for them. Um, this was in 2007 and eight, and so I, I saw this job as keeper of art uh, in um, Devon, and I got it. And I went there and I thought I'd be there for probably till I retired. But then um, they made me redundant, which made me. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, because and also, you know, a completely different subject again, art. I mean, I know you, you talk about because um, your dad was an artist as well, yeah. wasn't he? So were you, did you know anything about art? Were you doing any art at the time? <laughs> how did you or did you not need to know it because it was more of the keeper of the art? Or how, how did that? planet what were you hoping to get from that from that environment then? I actually to, to be honest with you I really 
did decide that I wanted to work with with 2D and three-dimensional art as much as I love music and I did join the choir in Cheltenham and I have played you know the trumpet and a few things in my life but I I would never call myself a musician so I always felt a little bit removed from the what it must be like to be a composer or a a true musician whereas I've grown up with my father as an artist my uncle my great uncle my grandfather my great-grandfather were all visual artists so I kind of felt that I knew a bit more about that and I understood a bit more about how you how you apply paint although I've done a bit of painting but I realized that my father as good an artist as he was didn't really get much support in his life and and I think that it occurred to me that actually I quite like facilitating art and artists and I also thought it might be nice to work with living artists and not just the kind of the dead white male if you like Uh, work in a museum you often are working you know with people who are long gone and of course they don't argue with you and that can be kind of good Um, but when you work with real artists they kind of come at you and they challenge you Um, so I was working with um, modern living artists I worked with Anthony Gormley and Damien Hurst and I mean I didn't like sit down and have coffee with them or anything but you know I was working with their artworks Mm. and and going to intermediaries and so on Um, and I was also working with a with an old collection of because where I worked was an abbey so it, it was built in 1196 so it was had a huge history but my but they had a very very good art collection and I just thought you know what I really really love painting so much and I had during my open university years I'd done um, a module on art in 15th century Italy I'd done a modern art uh, course I did a film course which it's it's it helps you to know more about um, paintings, actually, if you know about film a little bit. Mm. Um, and also Shakespeare, a lot of Shakespeare um, is, there's a lot of art inspired by Shakespeare, as you can imagine. Uh, a lot of oh, art yeah, galleries, yeah. a lot of writers and artists are very inspired by Shakespeare. So I thought, really, if I had my choice, I would really like to work with paintings. Um, and that's why I took that job, really. Um, and then, as I say, I, 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 there was this extra part, which was working with with living artists. And I, I did enjoy that because it's it's actually very rewarding to work with an artist who maybe has never had an exhibition and is but is desperate to show their work. And and because it was a council run building, I would I really like to say yes as much as possible. So people would phone me up and say, I've, I've got a whole um exhibition about uh, Agatha Christie uh, in, in art that I've done and it's a little bit funky because Agatha Christie was born in Torquay and I say look Agatha Christie was born in Torquay you've done modern art come on let's do it and let's put it on the wall and yeah. we did it you know um, and she's still going strong and she's just finished her MA in, in graphic design and she's exhibiting her work her name's Tracy Satchwell uh, she's now living over in uh, Norfolk way um, and, uh, and and she said, you said, yes, she said, I'm amazed. And I said, because, you know, what? I, I, I haven't been a curator for very long and I don't have I'm not I'm not hung up about that. You know, if I can say yes, I will. That's it. If you feel that there's something there and actually, you know, you saying about her describing that um, the art that she'd done. I mean, I would immediately say yes. How interesting is that? You yeah. know, when you, you just get a feel for it, I guess, don't you? So is that is that then how you because um, you went on to host a radio show didn't you in Devon which was a cultural radio show so was that just kind of a natural progression because you'd had all these lovely creative cultural inputs and you just how did how did that land in your lap that's another another string to your bow yeah I think so I, I, I'm a bit of a jack of all trades that, that is true um I um 
I went to do that because I was on the radio show talking about this Anthony Gormley exhibition that I did. And we had 38,307 people to see this exhibition in six weeks. And in Torquay, that's a lot of people. I mean, we were getting maybe yeah. fifteen to 20,000 people a year into the museum, if we were lucky. So to get 38,000 in six weeks was a bit of a shock. You did your job well. Well, it was, <laughs> I, you know, it was, <laughs> yeah, there was, uh, the Arts Council were helping the, the take britain helped there was there was a marketing team that they actually let me have access to the marketing team you know which normally the, at my level i i probably wasn't allowed to to have a budget mm. for that but they they did realize this was going to be fairly big and as i say there was a little team there and and also you know my superiors they pricked their ears up and said oh yeah actually yeah this could be good so they did they did give us a certain amount of support which made a huge difference you know if you work in the arts and you just somebody to support you you it can make a yeah. huge difference um, one step up absolutely mm. and um and so i was invited onto this radio show riviera fm and um and the the, the guy who owns it again i love him because he's he's just uh, my kind of guy he 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 was phoned me up after and said thanks ever so much for coming on the show and would you like your own radio show and uh, and i thought wow. he was joking you know and i, and I said yeah <laughs> <laughs> I really would. And he said, well, why not then? And he said, why don't you just call it Amelia's Culture Show and just do it? And so, again, you know, I um, I decided his name's Martin Foster. And uh, and I said, um, I'd love that. So, you know, I did a bit of training and we found a slot and I worked with some people to, to learn the lay of the land. And then, then he said, you know, you can do what you want. You can choose the music you want. You can have the guests you want. He said, just just kind of keep it keep it going. And I did it for five years. And I think it was absolutely mm. fantastic. I mean, you know, the love of radio and audio is just, oh, yeah. I love it. I, I, I really love it. You should start your own one over there. I, yes, I, you know, my, that was my plan when I came. Um, I had uh, my, my great nephew said to me, oh, Amelia, are you going to do the radio still? Because that's so cool, you know, he was only about 12 at the time. Um, <laughs> uh, and I said, well, yes, I, you know, I'm planning to do it. And I've got a little studio here uh, as well. And, uh, you know, I... I just don't know where the time goes. I, I just yeah. I just don't have the time. I obviously was doing the walk. I, I wrote my book. I, I'm playing an exhibition with my partner because she's an artist. She's been doing artwork around my walk. A bit, little bit of a secret, but I can probably tell you it was going to be a German edition of my book. Yes, I read as well. Uh, so that's my my next thing. Um, and also, I'm going to I am going to record the audio of my book because I think that I should do that. Are you? I think you should. And, and the main reason I think you should is so people can listen to it whilst they walk. Yes. Because the amount of things I've listened to whilst I walk. Uh, so oh yeah, definitely, definitely, without hesitation, because it's such an amazing book and. Right, I'm just going to go to the bit where you got made redundant now, because this is kind of the sort of catalyst as to why this all happened, wasn't oh. it? So you, you you mentioned you got made redundant from from the Abbey, and you had a few mental health issues there, a few struggles, so which you described so well in your book. So can you tell me what happened and why you think that was? Yeah, um, I I was working really really long hours because not only was I working at Tor Abbey and working with these artists, but but actually the reason why they they created this post was because they had 15. Million million pounds worth of funding from the lottery uh heritage lottery fund which is a lot of money and basically from these the, the roof down to the foundations of this ancient abbey all of it was being 
ripped out, changed, modern galleries put in. Obviously, they didn't change the facade and so on, but there was so much of the building that was structurally unsound. Um, so we were having to, you know, move collections, take collections out. So at one point, we had to, twice, we had to completely empty the whole building. And we're talking, it's it's a huge building. It's like a sort of... Oh, it's quite a physical job as very well. Very physical. I was, I was, it was exhausting. Um and also, you know, when you're moving paintings, they're, they're very, very fragile and very, very heavy. <laughs> it's a very bad combination, you know, and um, because actually the, the gold frames have got like a plaster. Um, but after the wood, there's like a plaster which is painted onto them and then that's painted red and then there's gold leaf. So they chip exactly like a ceramic would but they might weigh you know 100 kilograms you know so you're talking oh, about uh, yeah. some of these huge huge paintings with oak frames and so on so moving them and storing them and cataloging them and also knowing where they are and we didn't actually have a really good computer system so we were doing it on paper you know uh, and moving the entire collection so that was very stressful well that's exhausting in itself Completely isn't it? exhausting and you can't if you lose something you know, we had we had about thirty thousand items. You, you're not going to find it. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's quite hard um, on the back of a fag packet. Exactly <laughs> right. Exactly right. And there were marbles and and there was you know, all kinds of very heavy and delicate things. So we had to move those. We had to then, um, you know, plan the exhibitions, uh, write the captions, and I, and a lot of this was I was doing on my own really because it was a new post, um, and. Um, so there was quite a lot of stress and I was working probably I, I assessed that I was probably working about 70 hours a week I think and so of course I, I really wasn't exercising at all I probably wasn't eating that well and I mean I did try you know I tried to eat my fruit and veg and everything but you with the best one in the world something has to give so yeah. I, 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 I began to get uh, I think very tired and, and quite stressed and then unfortunately there was somebody at work who uh, I won't go into a lot of detail, but he was he he was arrested and taken away um, uh, for various crimes, and which were very upsetting. And of course, when he left, I they didn't replace him, and so I was thinking, I wonder who's going to do his work. Well, guess oh, who? Yeah. <laughs> so oh, I had to yeah. do that. Um, you know, so that was just the way it was, really. And so I sort of accepted that. Or what choice did I have? And um, and I just I just kept on working and kept on working and doing what I what I thought I should. And then, of course, I was I was already, I think, not very well. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then uh, they said, well, you know what? We've got no money now because we're open. It's it's done. The, all the money's gone, you know. And they said, so really? Um, and I, I knew it was coming. And I said, so goodbye. Yeah, exactly. And they said, so and we're going to tell everybody probably a few days before Christmas. And this was around about November. And I said, you know what? I'm not going to wait till Christmas. And everybody's got it hanging over them. And I was probably, I wasn't, it wasn't like I was earning a huge amount, but I was more expensive than some of the others. And I said, you know, I think I'm at this position now where I know it's going to be me anyway, probably. So rather than wait for another six weeks, I think just tell me now. And they said, yeah, okay, then it, it, it will be you probably. So, and if you're saying that now, well, let's make it you then. Uh, so it was, it was an element of 90%, you know, pushed and 10% me saying, you know, I can't wait another six weeks. I'm going to be so ill if I wait. So, um, 
And luckily, I met Katie, my my Austrian. Yeah, partner. oh, I love that story. A real serendipity moment, wasn't it? It was. And uh, and she said to me, Amelia, you know what? You, it's enough. You can just rent out your flat or something, and just just come and live with me, and we'll sort it out. You know, just do it. Tell me how you met her, though. Tell us how you met her because that's really funny. Um, I I met her because my um, I was working at Tor Abbey with a very nice couple, actually, their husband and wife, and they were renting Katie's little cottage right in the middle of Holden Forest in Exeter. And um, and they said to me one day, um, chatting as you do, oh, it's lovely where we live and you'd really like it and you should come and see us. And or maybe, maybe when we go on holiday or we, because they also were actors and sometimes we go on tour, you might like to look after our little dog and you can come and walk in the forest. And I thought, oh my God, it sounds so wonderful. And I said, yeah, I'd love that. And this was something like August. And they said, it's so nice in August. You can walk late in the evening and, and then they, of course, they phoned me up something like um, a few days before Christmas. It's absolutely pitch black, freezing cold. You know, <laughs> it's pitch black. You literally can't even find this cottage. There's not a light anywhere. It took me an hour to find it. And and they said, you said you look after the dog, so can you do it tomorrow sort of thing? And I went, uh, okay. <laughs> um, and I had, of course, had to go at lunchtime to pick up the keys because I never would have found it at night. Anyway, eventually found it. My boss was not very happy that I was going off for, you know, a proper lunchtime because I was gone about an hour or so. And uh, when I got there, they were not there, of course. And um, so I uh, I knocked on the door, next door um, to get the key. And it was where Katie was because she, she lived next door, but she was renting out her cottage. And uh, this lovely lady answered the door and very tiny. And I'm sort of nearly six foot and Katie's about five foot something. And if that. And uh, she said, oh, if you come for the key in this lovely accent, you know, sort of French sounding accent. And I said, oh, she's nice. And um, and I apparently filled the doorway uh, because the, the little cottage. And she, I have this like <laughs> the thing at the time I was wearing this military coat, you know, like we all had, you know, like a Navy coat down to the ground. I don't know what the hell I was wearing that for. But anyway, I probably thought it was really cool. And she said, you have this ridiculous coat on, but it looked kind of cool, actually. But she said, and you're, I was like, who the hell is this? She said. Um, and she, I think, quite liked me. And I had no idea that, that she liked me, really. And um, and she said, oh, why don't you come back at the weekend and take the dog now and come back at the weekend and we go for a walk and have a meal? And I said, yeah, very innocently. You know, I didn't think about it. And um, and then uh, we, I went back at the weekend and had this nice meal with her. And then she said, oh, do you want to come back next weekend? Because I had the dog for two weeks. And I said, I can't really because I've got to do my garden. And so she said, I'll come and help you. And so she she came middle of winter and started helping me do my garden. And, and for oh, weeks, brand new yeah, chapter. it was amazing. For six weekends, she gave up all her time. Just the chance meeting. It really was. And then after this, working on the garden, and she made it beautiful. And she's this wonderful artist, a metal worker, and jeweler. And she just made the garden come to life. And and I was, I began to think, gosh, Mm. you know, I feel so much better. getting out in the garden and nature and mm. and we didn't really, you know, talk about it very much. It just just kind of happened. And it was so lovely. Uh and with and no angst really. Um and so um and then she, and of course by this point, you know, we'd we'd been together a little while when they made me redundant and she just said, took a leap of faith really and said, I think you should go. I think you should come and live with me. And uh, and I did. Yeah. And um but then she said to me at one point, I, I think this cottage is a bit small isn't it for us too it really was very tiny um and I could hardly stand up in there and so I, I just said you know I said you know what I don't know why we don't go and live in Austria because she her mum was living in the house and um 
where we are now. And uh, and she said, yeah. okay, which I was completely shocked that she agreed. And it's just, and that's amazing in itself because you, you obviously, because you'd visited there with her and so it was it was a no-brainer to go and move over there. But that that was strange in itself as well because your dad was stationed there in the war, wasn't he? And you describe him in quite a bit of detail in the book and I like the way you kind of pop him in there every now and again. And he must have had quite an impression on you, but to find out what he was doing over there and the fact that you're living there must have just been added another whole dimension of interest for you. It was incredible, really, because my father was was called Leonard and um, where I'm living now is called Bad St. Leonhard. So it's got the word Len in it. And the church is called the Leonhardy Kirk. So again, Leonard. And, um, and my father was stationed 45 minutes drive from where I am now. Uh, he wasn't actually here during the, the, the war itself. He was here to, during the time when they were trying to repatriate people and get them back. Because uh, you can imagine it's the middle of Central Europe, um, about a million people that needed to get back home. So to Slo- what's now Slovenia was then Yugoslavia or and the surrounding areas. And of course, for many of them, it was too dangerous for them to go back because they were on the wrong side, you see, or it would be perceived they could have been on the wrong side. So they were actually living in what had been either army camps or concentration camps. or So it was kind of awful for them in many ways. So they, they obviously were not captive anymore, but they had nowhere to go. And this is the sort of part of the war that actually people don't know about very much. Um, they think, oh, 1945 is over. You know, great, go home. And uh, of course, a lot of people did, but these people were stuck. So refugees, um, yeah. They were basically refugees, mm. absolutely. And um, it was terribly difficult for them. Um, and so the the Americans, the British, and so on sent groups of people over to help uh, do the administration and so on to get these people home. So my father was sent here and he was the most appalling um, RAF officer ever because he was uh, he was an artist, a bird watch. He was a little bit oh, fey, really, very he delicate. He didn't want to be there really, did he? want to be a very beautiful handsome sort of guy and um and he spent a lot of his time you know swimming and painting and watching birds um because and he worked he did work but he he just he never was invested he was never the kind of gung-ho type um and i actually managed when he was 89 years old i managed to get him here uh, before we lived here actually just for a few weeks and he said i've never been back to austria i absolutely loved it here it's like a little paradise i'm so glad i came back but i was a bit afraid to come back because i, I you know memories and so on i suppose because of course it no no matter how good of an experience he had it was still wartime and yeah. he was still separated from his twin brother for example his family his fiance um at the time not my mother actually and she, she unfortunately uh, died um and then my father met my mother. Um, but it somehow it just felt that when I was here, um, that that it was again meant to be really. Mm. And it was so strange. And and that he could have been anywhere in Austria and he was in the Corinthian area, which is where I live. And yeah. so um And as an artist, he must have really fallen in love with it as well, because it's it's amazing scenery over there as well, isn't it? So he loved it. And and of course, because he grew up in Surrey, it's pretty flat there. He mm. could he'd never seen a mountain or or a big hill really. <laughs> um and so he, he he absolutely loved it. And um and, and I and he gave me his 17 diaries from from mainly from the period when he was in Austria and I found in a suitcase which is an unbelievable dream for a curator his watercolors and on the back they've got the date that links to the diary can you believe oh, incredible. Um, in, in the loft in my parents house so I've now 
he gave them to me and I've got them here and that will be probably be my next book <laughs> oh I, oh you, yes you absolutely have to I mean because you when you moved over there you um obviously you went on to write your book but before that you were feeling you were still feeling a bit kind of I haven't got much to do and I don't really know what I'm going to do and it's really lovely over here and I'm glad I'm living with Katie and it's beautiful and all this has happened and you were living in Katie's parents house and that kind of opened up a whole other piece of history for you but you um you were kind of I don't know how you want to put it you were just kind of floating around a bit you weren't quite sure what you were going to do so you decided to take yourself off for a walk which is where all this book sort of started wasn't it so I'm sure everyone listening to this will enjoy hearing about that walk so what happened after that decision that you made can you tell me how that developed into a kind of pact you made and how did you feel starting that walking journey? Well, I, well, I started work for my parents. My parents had a shop, and I started work when I was fifteen, and and then I started working, you know, for the MOD when I was sort of nineteen. So for pretty much thirty-four years of my life, I'd worked, and or I was doing my degree, or working and doing my degree. Sometimes yeah. I think I at one point I had three jobs. I think um, I just always, always worked, and of course before that, you're at school from the age of five, aren't you? So you could say that for pretty much my entire life. I would had this nine to five structure and suddenly you don't have that anymore. And it's, and, and Katie said, you're institutionalized. That's your problem. And of course she's an artist. So, you know, she could see that. And I, I agreed. I said, it's hard you're to right. let go, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. 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 And, and it's lovely when you, you come to, to a beautiful country and Austria is gorgeous mm. in the summer and, and we had the most beautiful weather and it's, it's really fulsome, you know, it's, it's very, very nice here. Um, very luscious and green just fills you up completely yeah really doesn't you get these morning dews so it doesn't get parched you know the grass remains green even when it's very hot it's beautiful sound of music like yeah yeah absolutely right and uh and i was i was i was wounded and and still upset Mm -hmm. by by the way i'd been treated i think from having worked so hard and, and having to go but there you are but then of course it comes to november december and i thought actually, you know, I don't think I'm completely better or well or whatever mm. the word is. So I, um, and I was waiting for my house sale to go through because we decided to, that I would sell my house at this point because it was silly to just, you know, I had to unburden ourselves from from debt really. And uh, I decided let's just do that. That would be a huge uh, weight off our shoulders. I was waiting for my house sale to go through and it didn't happen, of course, just before Christmas. And I was, I was feeling very very worried about that you know when you've got financial problems you know what it's like you can't you can't you can't really just be happy can't switch um, off from it no you can't um so I, I I said oh I'm going to go for a little walk and I thought I might be gone for about an hour and I had done this particular walk that ended up being the walk that's in my book once before before we lived here and I realized that I was walking it but the other way because it's a circular walk so I was walking it the opposite way around mm-hmm. and I thought I recognize this I said oh if I carry on going I could do the whole walk again and as as I said earlier it's a bit different in December because it's much colder yeah um, anyway and and it's covered really with snow <laughs> yeah absolutely and I had nothing with me you know I didn't have any I didn't have any water I think I might have had an apple or something but I wasn't really prepared you know and I wasn't very fit either and I was absolutely exhausted when I got to the top, but I was determined to carry on. And I and I had quite a bad stomach when I started and headache and various things and feeling feeling basically sorry for myself. <laughs> and I got back home and I was so exhausted that I, of course, fell asleep um, and straight away and, uh, and woke up and ate something. And in the morning I was very stiff. But I thought, even though 
I feel very stiff and a little bit sore, I feel better somehow. Yeah. Um, just a little bit better, you know, and not quite so stressed in a way. And I wasn't really sure exactly why. So I um I looked at my diary and I and I thought I've got I don't know why I'm looking at my diary because there's nothing in it. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> wants me, you know, and I've got nothing planned. But I happened to see the uh, the in Austrian diaries they give you the week, you know. I don't think we do that in, in England, but and it said Vocker uh, Spy and Funsig, which means week 52. I see. OK. Yeah. And, and I thought week 52, week 52. That's interesting. I just walked this walk in week 52 and I thought, oh, what if I just kind of did it every week for 52 weeks? And then next December, I'll have done 52, you see. And it was just random that I saw this number in, and I kept thinking about it. You know, like in a film where you see the spinning newspaper, you know, and it keeps coming back into your mind. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, and so I did it again the following week and I carried on going. And then, of course, by the time I got three or four under my belt, I thought I've got to do this now because I can't just only do three and if I'm going to do 52. And I've always been quite determined. So I just started to do it week after week. I thought maybe it'd be a blog or maybe I would just make a few notes. And I yeah. thought, I don't really want to write a blog. I've, I haven't even got a website. I don't know how to do it. Uh, I'm, I've got you know, no contacts really, uh, so don't know anybody. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought, why don't I write a book? And I've always wanted to write you know, a proper book. Um, so I started to take notes on the walk. It was freezing, so I would try to get, you know, fingerless gloves or uh, I would then start to remember parts of the walk for so long and then get to the next bench and then quickly scribble them down and then get to the next bench, you know, yeah. or use my phone or or come home immediately and, and kind of quickly write my notes down and then I bought a, a second hand but slightly better camera than I had and I got that and so my photographs got a bit better and I, I liked that because I, I'd been into photography when I was about 18 I remembered and it all started to come together and then I thought I, I need to start writing this then and then it was very scary because I really had no idea what I was doing mm -hmm. and I wrote it in the past tense and then I remember being in a poetry class uh, when I did my open university degree and the tutor telling us about a Wilfred Owen poem called Gast and uh, he said to us why do you think this poem works and none of us knew the answer and he said because the poem is in the present tense he said, think about it. You're in the trench with these soldiers and they're being gassed and you are as well. And that's mm. why the poem is so powerful because you it's not these men were in the trench and then the gas came. It's like you're 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 in it with the with these poor men. And he said it's so painful to read that you can never forget it. And I've never forgotten that poem yeah. and also the teaching about what the tense being so important. And I thought, gosh, that's amazing, isn't it? Um, and it was news to me at the time. Um, so I thought, well, and I thought of this moment uh, being taught about this poem. And I thought, maybe I should actually write my book in the immediate present tense. Mm -hmm. So what I've tried to do from that moment, really, is to change absolutely everything to, and write it on the walk or immediately I come home. And my plan was that when you're reading the book, I like to think you're sort of on my shoulder, sitting on my shoulder with me or standing or walking beside me and seeing it as I'm seeing it. So yeah. that's the idea, uh, I hope. Um, oh, it's completely like that. Yeah, I mean, cause, because obviously it's all about that project, as I'll call it, your walking project. And, and you've kind of done it in that diary format. But the thing, I mean, I just want to get this in there because this really jumped out um, of the book for me. And it's when 
you talk about um, going back to when you were working in a museum, you talk about an artist in resident who you interviewed for the museum where you were creating and you describe how she refuses to tell you what her style is at the time when you were selecting her to be an artist. And she said, well, I need to observe the museum and produce what um, what I would need to over a few months. I can't tell you what I'm going to do because I'm an artist. And then she goes on to produce photographs and audio and, and a play, a little mini play, I think, of the museum. And mm-hmm. then it's then that you realise, uh, and I quote here, that the process and planning stage are critical to success and that not knowing all the answers is a crucial part of the process. And for me, that's such a profound thing to understand because... I think we all tend to think of what we want to happen or what we want the end result to be without letting the project kind of organically unfold or enjoying the journey, um, as it were. So is that something that you managed to keep in mind whilst you wrote the book as well as in your life, do you think? Because you say you researched the book for two years and then it took you three years to write it. And I can completely see why, because it's it's so consuming it's a, it's a bird watching book and it mentions cloud study and it mentions botany and of course uh, your love story and loads of different references and extras and bits and bobs and so you decided to do that format because you wanted it in the present tense in the form of a diary so all of those embellishments you made notes as you were going like you said or, or did some of it come later like I mean it's incredible how you kind of created the book I just find that fascinating did you did you manage to keep that journey in mind when you were writing it yeah I, that, that it's, it's a great question because I I, I like to think that, that I could only have written the book the way I did because I had this experience of working with contemporary living artists as I say mm-hmm. and, and just to explain that a little bit further when my father for example used to go out and, and to paint a watercolour, which was his medium. I'm not saying he would necessarily stand there with an easel, but he would go to a place, have an idea that he was going to paint that, maybe make some sketches and then come home and say, I'm going to paint today the West Malvern Hills um, and probably around about, you know, dusk would be nice. And I probably use these colours. And he, I'm pretty certain he had a fairly clear idea of what he wanted to paint in his mind. And then he'd paint that and it would be absolutely beautiful. And people would say, wow, that's fantastic. But there was no real sense that he, as an artist, not, it's not a criticism, it's just that was the way artist process yeah that was his process and that was the way I thought art was made um whereas contemporary artists will will say as as you pointed out that if I knew all the answers right now before I even get out of of the car or walk up into into say West Malvern in to use the same analogy and I know what the paint is going to look like it's kind of why am I doing it Mm. you know because I already I'm basically going to match the image in my head with what's in front of me and get the two to correlate so yes at the end of it you get a beautiful painting but there's no real mystery there yeah. or surprise yeah. for me as an artist and obviously if you're selling your work it's, it's mysterious for the buyer but it's not that exciting when you've done 500 like that yeah so she said for me it's much more exciting if i think hmm, I, i'm going to walk around again west malvern and I'm going to make some kind of art, but mm. I don't know what. Mm. How exciting is that? And of course, I was thinking, crikey, that's that's a bit that's a bit radical. Yeah, <laughs> a bit risky. Dangerous. Uh, a bit risky. What's going on? I say. And um, and so I, I I thought to myself when I was planning, and I did about four or five walks. As I say, I thought, you know what? I can't. I'm going to allow myself to do what 
these contemporary artists were teaching me when I was at Tor Abbey. I'm going to to allow the process to to, to look after me mm. and not me. And I'm, as you can imagine, and probably not be surprised to hear, a bit of a control freak. <laughs> so I thought, Amelia, you know, you're going to have to let go, you know, yeah. and let it come to you. Oh, it's so liberating, isn't it? As well, especially if you are somebody who tends to sort of lean on those um, those kind of ways. Um, it is really liberating to be able to do that because you you include and and I think it's allowed you to and and I'm, I'm hoping you'll agree with me on this that that you're able to interject loads of beautiful descriptions as you've gone along so there's points where you equate sounds of melting snow to an orchestra and the primrose buds poking up through the soil um, and comparing things to literature or painting I mean that doesn't come through planning that just comes through that organic process doesn't it absolutely right and my my man the one that i i suppose the chapter that i was most nervous about and I, you may not have got to it yet actually mm-hmm. uh, was one where i went i actually it was so hot and i I'm, i can't possibly go in the afternoon because i just melt because i'm english after all <laughs> you know i can't cope with any temperature you know above about three degrees whatever it is um and uh, i i went out very early in the morning well very very early for me about six or seven i suppose and i got to this field and it was that wonderful summer mist you get you know where the whole thing is a kind of beautiful yeah. misty foggy morning and everything was shrouded in this warm sort of um sort of moisture yeah. and um and I, I, I looked down and all these wonderful wildflowers again in a very sort of you know sound of music way and every almost the whole field and it's huge field like four or five um uh, football fields and they they were almost every single flower was looped together by a cobweb and I mean, I'm talking oh, I millions of cobwebs. Yeah. And it's only when I looked down, I thought, my God, the whole field is full of these. So immediately I went into kind of you know, botany mode and I started to write down and I thought, crikey, this is a bit complicated. When I got back home, I, 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 I realised that um, there was no way in the world I could work out what kind of spider that was because there's so many thousands of, of kinds of spider and even people who are experts don't know so I, I and I think I, I think I'd learned that before actually so I kind of looked down at these cobwebs and I thought oh, forget that yeah <laughs> because you know I, I don't mind researching but I'm not I'm not crazy <laughs> and so I started to to think about this looping cobwebs in front of me and I took I took a few photographs uh, not fantastic photographs very hard to photograph cobwebs because there's nothing there you know um, so uh, I, I took a few pictures and as I was walking along, I was thinking about this this looping of these uh, cobwebs. And for some reason, I think because I worked with Shakespeare in the theatre, I began to think about when an actor acts, they kind of throw out, you know, a bit Spider-Man-like, these sort of um, webs to the audience. Mm-hmm. And the audience has to catch that, if you like, because when you're when you're in the audience, you've got to, you know, really again immerse yourself and accept that it's yeah. that it's fake but you yeah. believe it you know, suspension that. of disbelief it's called you know um and so i thought about this phrase and i researched the phrase uh, suspension of disbelief again and uh, it goes back to you know 18th century and so on and um and i'm thinking that's kind of cool isn't it that this field is like so many actors throwing out their webs so then i began to think about my theatrical experiences when i've been in the theater Let's face it, we've been to a lot of theatrical productions where you actually never catch the thread. You never get mm-hmm. this actor really connecting with you. But sometimes you go to the theatre and you get the most magical experience, don't mm, you? You do. You're lucky. 
it only happens a few times in your life yeah. i think i mean I've, I've seen a lot of theater and it hasn't happened to me very many times mm -hmm. but i've got a couple of examples so i just came home and made some notes and i wrote it and i was trying to explain it to katie and she said sounds a bit weird to me <laughs> and I said, yeah it is a bit weird and she said i'm not sure i said well i'm gonna write it i said Let, let's write it so i i did it and i handed it to a few people and i said you know what i'm very worried about this chapter because i think it's a bit strange and they said i don't know why they somebody said it's it is it is a bit of an odd analogy but it's your memory and it's your oh, idea yeah. and, and it, it works you, it's okay yeah, you know don't yeah. worry about it. don't cut it you know because and this, that was really helpful because I did start to cut things I started to second guess myself mm. you know and cut things and actually luckily people said no just keep it in you know it's it's your book you know but so that's what I like it. that's exactly it because I mean you know I see things all the time when I'm going out for walks and things and usually it's locked inside your head and if somebody's lucky enough I'll tell them <laughs> you know yeah, something and, yeah. and um, they'll either go yeah you're crazy or what or what or you know there are plenty of people out there that go yeah oh i know what you mean and it's only when you get it out there you realize actually how many people have thought the same or catch what you said and say oh yeah i never thought about it like that before or vice versa so it's really really nice for you to get it down on paper because and, and you've done that all the way through the book i mean you particularly um connects lots of golden images around you which I like and you you connect those with oh I love this this section this alchemy yeah. obviously the book's called walking into alchemy which we've not even mentioned yet um <laughs> but um and and there's a there's a particular section on there about um how alchemy is at work and the alchemy which happens inside of you is connected and then in connection with that you describe so well uh the different stages of the the actual scientific alchemy process and compare those to spiritual alchemy, which I just I had to kind of put the book down at that point before I'd even read it because I just thought that was just brilliant. And then you say there are seven stages of alchemy, um, scientific alchemy. And then the, the first example you give, which is brilliant, and I'll just read it. And it says, the first is called calcination in chemical alchemy. The material to be transformed is first burnt and turned into ash. In spiritual alchemy, breaking attachments to worldly possessions is the first goal. I instinctively knew that I had to unshackle myself from debt and from possessions that I couldn't afford to keep. The packing up of my life in England and lifting the burden of my mortgage was the first step and I immediately felt that a great weight was lifted from me. How did it feel when you made that connection? Because you mentioned that this project was all about connections for you and it just kind of, it's just connection, connection, connection all the way through and, and it, it's lovely to read. Thank you. Well, uh, it, it was actually quite, again, you know, it's it, it was very strange because I called the book ridiculously. The book was called A Shadow Falls Across an Apple Tree in Austria. And um, a <laughs> terrible title. Catchy and, title. Uh, <laughs> it was so catchy, yeah, and it's terrible. And I, I was working on that for ages. And then a friend of Katie's is from Berlin, and she's very direct. I love her to bits. Her name is um, Gabby. Yeah. And she said, Amelia, this is a terrible title, and you need to get rid of it. And, I, and everybody else Fair was enough. like, well, okay. <laughs> Thanks for your opinion. Ooh, yeah. and, and Katie said, yeah, she's right. It's rubbish. And uh, and I said, actually, yeah, maybe right. She said, shadow. You know, it sounds very negative. And she said, it's already kind of a sad story at the beginning. Yeah. You don't want to, you know, people to just think, oh, Lord, you know. Mm. And so... Um, and she said, you need something much nicer, much, much brighter. So then I thought, oh, no, gosh, you know, I do, she's right. But this is going to be very hard. A title is a very hard thing, you know. Mm. So um, 
I was I was going through my notes and I did I did a walk just after that and and I happened to leave it a little bit late and as I was coming home I was getting towards winter anyway and I, and and there was a sunset which I loved and I was thinking oh that's a beautiful golden sunset and I was looking through my photographs and thinking oh a lot of gold going on here a lot of bronze and all these lovely yellow colours and so on and of course Katie is um is a jeweller and one of the things about alchemy is that you take metal base metal of no value and the by this ancient mysterious mysterious process you turn it into gold mm-hmm. and this was something that was from a millennia people have been trying to make gold and of course you actually can't um so i i, I like this idea of alchemy but i was worried about the connotations of it being like a con artist trying to take a piece of you know metal worth nothing and turn it into something yeah. that's like a fake gold i was worried about that um but then i i was thinking yes but i, I don't mean i don't mean money i mean to, to turn something like i feel better and and katie makes things beautiful things you know mm. from from metal um and so there's some kind of alchemy here and the word just would not go away yeah yeah, and, and you actually use it as well in because it's the transformative power of nature, which is just underneath the title. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? Transforming things. Absolutely. And, and so I and I had a very good friend of mine who was helping me. She's mentioned in the book. Her name's Tali. She said, I think you bet you, you before you think about the word alchemy, I think you should be careful and you should really Google the hell out of it and, and make sure that you're not making a mistake because it's nice. But just be careful. So I was Googling uh, various things around alchemy and all sorts of interesting things and mysterious things were coming up. And then suddenly I found this um spiritual alchemy which i'd never heard of mm-hmm. and katie was asleep and it was about midnight and uh, we were sitting downstairs and i started to read it and i i i was i almost jumped out of my skin when i read the comparison between my walk and my experience and what the spiritual alchemy process which is like you say you start off kind of at your absolute depths and you have to rebuild your life yeah. through this process and I couldn't believe it. It was like I, I'd done it without knowing I'd yeah. done it. A bit like the 12 steps, I suppose, isn't it? That yeah, kind of, yeah. Exactly. yeah, it's a very good analogy. I hadn't thought of that one mm. time. And, um, and, I, and I, I was almost, you know, you know, we get like goosebumps. And yeah. I just thought, this is weird. And, I, and again, I wasn't sure what to do with this information because I'd, I'd pretty much finished the book then. So I, I contacted my friend Tali and she's and I told her and she was like, oh, you know, I can see you're excited. That's fantastic. OK, now, come on. You know, you've got to sit down and I'll really write that down. Uh, and I said, oh, it's ever so hard. She said, yeah, I know, <laughs> but you've got to do it. <laughs> and she's very tough on me. And she said, you need to write down the chapter called Alchemy, explain what on earth it is you're trying to do what you have done and then and then she said to me when you've done that you've also got to go and do the walk one more time because yeah. we really need to know now where you're at you know in your life since you finished the walk for the for the 52 times and uh, and again in my heart I was thinking oh no right another two chapters are you mad um she was completely right you know the book I thought the book ended on the last walk and she was right she said it doesn't end there Amelia you've got to kind of now tie it all together yeah, and um and she was really, you know, fantastic advice. And that's what you need. I mean, a book is always going to be a collaboration, I think, you know, yeah. with editors and so on involved. But um, good to have that input, isn't it? 
Oh, you have to have that, I think. And because I've worked in theatre a lot and I've done I've written a few plays and that's collaborative, you know. So this was something I suddenly working much more on my own was much more difficult. Um, but I did have people helping me. And and sometimes, of course, people would say, you know, really, I, I think you should ditch your book and write a comedy, Amelia. And I was like, well, I've written it now, so I'm, I'm not doing that. <laughs> you know, so occasionally yeah. you get very unhelpful advice. But <laughs> <laughs> it's all done. It's all done. And I'm sure that I'm sure you'll write some more. Like you say, loads of um, things will come out of this because presumably now so you that's your project book that's your initial kind of um projecting you into writing and you've got you've got lots of nice hobbies now and and presumably writing has meant other things as well because you i mean like everyone i speak to about walking it often leads to do on to do other things and you mentioned that you're leading walking tours now as well so has that kind of come out of the book and or, or is that just something separate I've done I've done a couple I'd like to do more but we, we we did because I was thinking about the the refugee situation and my father living through that period here and also one of the uh, the old hotels which has now become a, a house for refugees mm. uh, that, that I pass we've done a couple of walks raising money uh, for refugees who, who are in Austria either waiting to get a permanent residency here or moving on to other places because this can be a, a little bit of a sort of waiting uh, place while people uh, decide where they're going and they might have walk from you know not for pleasure at all yeah and of course that makes you feel very humble and um one day I said to um a friend of mine who's actually French um and she lives in Austria of course uh not far from here and and she said yes I I actually do quite a lot of work with the refugees here Mm -hmm. and uh yeah if you want us to organize a walk and 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 ask for donations she said I don't think we'll raise a lot but let's do it I said what does it matter it's about raising awareness as well as money so we've done that a couple of times um and I would like to do more of that of course uh, after the lockdown I don't want to be preachy about it or make people feel bad but just kind of think it's something you know because there are lots of people raising money for fantastic causes but refugees it's 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 not easy and, mm. and it's not it's not a sexy thing to raise money for because it's it's politically very difficult too you know people have very um opposing views about it so i've done a few of those and would like to do that more um and also actually um because i met uh, you know miriam uh, my my friend through this refugee uh, situation she also runs a language school so i've been doing english training oh. uh, now uh, so i've i've been doing some work um and so it's it sort of and i like to think that the book in a way did lead me to have to go out for example I've done some book readings in in some of the towns around here uh, in English I hasten to add I will hopefully be in German as well so I've had to go out and meet people and I think when when I was a bit depressed I was a bit reclusive um so the book made me go out um not only to walk but also to talk about walking yeah um, and you can speak German now right you, you've got quite good at that now um, I'm 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 reasonably good. I I I'm, I'm nervous, of course, and uh, and then you know it's always very hard if people people aren't quite sure what you said, or of course they speak dialect, which right. of course is like live in Wales or you know Norfolk or wherever it might be people have a sort of accent or what they call here a dialect and so sometimes you know I, they might understand me because I speak what's called Hochdeutsch which is like high German which is what they teach in school and they'll answer me in dialect and I think what and it's quite <laughs> different you know so that's sometimes confusing Don't you just um, shout at them you know like English people do just shout oh, a bit oh. louder yeah I'm pointing yes <laughs> pointing yeah. And but I, I spoke to a man today who remembered me from a few years ago and I know when i met him then I couldn't say anything to him in German and I had a little bit of a conversation today and I and I was it wasn't it wasn't you know very difficult but I thought okay well I've got I've I've passed a little bit you know but 
my German should be much better, I, I confess. I'm it's not satisfying, exactly... isn't it? Because I think, yes. you know, a lot of people don't, um, a lot of English people don't speak, you know, we're not great at languages. <laughs> we're not no, known we're not. for yeah. learning. Um, and I lived abroad, for, I lived in Israel for a bit. And, and to learn Hebrew over there, I mean, that was, I didn't really think oh, about it at the time. Right. But when you say, I know when you say it to people, they're like, what? How did you, because it is a super yeah. difficult language, I have to admit. But when you're immersed in it, you don't really think about it. And just having a conversation with somebody in their own language, is, there's something lovely about that. There's a real connection there with that. And presumably when, I mean, your book is about to be, or soon going to be translated into German, which is fantastic because it means that your local community can read it. Does that mean you'll be doing a kind of book tour around Austria and, and will that lead to other things there, do you think? Oh, I think so. I mean, we're, we're actually, we've decided, we've got this little team now working with me, which I'm extremely grateful to have, uh, you know, a translator, mother and son team doing the translation. And as I say, I've got my French friend who's helping me do sort of PR and sponsorship and so on. And we're going to do some crowdfunding. Right. We're going to do it through a German crowdfunding site, actually, having looked through all the various options, um, because that's that's going to be an exciting challenge. I think it's more really about the thing with crowdfunding is you get not only does it help you to sort of uh, um, lay some of the costs, but it also means that you can you get you get PR, you get advanced sort of interest in the book mm. and you can gauge whether actually you, you're making the right decision before you do it. Um, and uh, and I want to produce something that's um, in colour, like the one the book I have now. I don't know whether you've got a colour copy, but I haven't, um, sadly. No, that's okay. No, that's okay. But uh, it's a bit confusing because I was really strict with my publishers. They're Merio Books in Sirencester. They're really lovely, and I said I really want photographs at the top of every uh, chapter. Yeah. And in colour and not in the middle of the book or stuck stuck at the end mm. and they okay it will cost a bit more but we'll do it for you and they've done it um and uh, i really like that but unfortunately because uh, amazon or bookshops they they don't they won't do that because it retails at 20 pounds you see and right. they don't like that it's a bit too expensive so uh, it's it's now become that there's these two versions of the book around which i didn't expect to happen but i got no control over what uh, bookshops Amazon do um but actually here I want to produce a, a similar one with with the same sort of quality and it'd be really nice perhaps in the, in the initial period I will only I will only sell it in the color version and later launch it um I don't know I don't think it really matters it's just it's just quite nice for it to be a handsome picture. it does make a difference I mean I, I can obviously see the pictures in here but it would make a difference if they're in color so I completely agree with you but you I mean Obviously, you finished that book now, but and you'll still be promoting it. And and if, and I love your pictures on Instagram where you give them to people and and they're holding a picture of the book up. They're holding a picture of themselves yeah. holding the book, and you've managed to get it to somebody. So it's really really lovely. And that's obviously going to kind of permeate through, and and more and more people will buy it. But are you writing anything else at the moment? Is there anything else that you've got on the go that you're um that you're involved with writing wise? Um, well, I've been writing a few articles for Cotswold Life magazine about walking, and they and because Holst um, comes from that area, Holst, um, the composer, and as we mentioned a long time ago, the museum, um, I've been writing for them some articles, which has been really nice to have some published articles around walking and composing, which has been very nice. That was the I've read that one. That's the, the one you've done. It's lovely, isn't it? It sounds like a really brilliant walk. Is that the thirty-five mile one? Yes, that's right. Yes. The Gustav Holst way. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wrote about that. So I've been trying to do some some kind of more, um, I suppose, 
immediate things that, 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 that go into magazines that that have an audience straight away, if you like. Yeah. And that's been quite nice. So I've been invited. I've got a, a PR lady called Ellie Donovan and she's been helping me and she said I think it'd be nice for you to write some articles Amelia because it kind of keeps your your pen sharp you know um that's a good so that's been... a good phrase I like that <laughs> <laughs> um and uh and so I've been working on that because it's a different format you know you've only got maybe 900 words to, mm. to tell your story um so I, I'm doing more of that I I have again written two plays about Hulse because as I mentioned I've been doing some um work fundraising for the Hulse Birthplace Museum in Cheltenham uh, by proceeds of my book if you buy it from my website I give them five pounds for every copy or yeah. pound for every ebook sold um I'm also like I say I've written uh, um two plays which I've sent to theatre companies at the moment and we'll see and if I if they get put on um that's been a lockdown project for me but I so I kind of do, do things that I'm quite lucky really because I still think well now I'm having a bit of a Hulse moment so I'm going to carry on doing that mm. and then when those have gone to bed shall we say I um I'm going to launch my Shakespeare lectures on Zoom so I've Ooh. been practicing those nice. um those will be coming up soon because I haven't revisited those for two or three years i did give a series of them here um and i haven't looked to them since uh, since 2017 so i'm reworking those and putting them off. on to you know, powerpoint mm-hmm. and dusting them off and practicing with friends <laughs> yeah um and i shall do that i've done a couple of master classes for universities in america uh, which is on Zoom, which I never thought I would do. So that's been good. That's brilliant, and then I think I'll be my book about my father. And I would like to write about walking more, I think. But on the other hand, I put so much, I think, of myself into this book. Mm. I'm not sure I've got another walking book in me at the moment. Yeah, but, maybe uh, in a few yeah, years. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but is your, so what's your daily routine like, like now? Because obviously you've done all those walks, 52 of them. Um, all the same route. It, it, have, do you mix it all up now? Have you got a little repertoire going? Do you how often? Because I know you did the walk today before our chat. But do you kind of do that every now and again, and do some other ones? And do you spring out of bed in the morning and go for your walk like you did before, or or is it kind of settled down because you've got other things going on? I um I do my little bit of German every day. I'm, I've managed to do 252 days on my little app, and I'm on a I'm on a bit of a roll there. And I, I'm terrified I'm going to lose it now because it keeps telling me, "Oh, well done, keep going." So I don't know how many days I'll keep going on that. So I do that first thing before I get out of bed because I know I won't do it if I don't. Yeah, a bit of Shakespeare uh, in German. <laughs> absolutely right i have my my ginger lemon water in the morning um which is nice and healthy i don't like it but it's healthy so i'm sticking with that um (laughs) and then i try to go for a walk i do i do on average about 45 to 50 kilometers a week Mm -hmm. um just every day something and and one maybe if i'm lucky one day a week i try to go for three or four hours but mostly it's about an hour and a half um and then i come back um it, it, i tried to make it part of my life somebody said amelia you're still talking about that book and walking what's the matter with you and i said well i agree it's annoying i accept that but i said equally if you find a really good diet for example and you're healthy and you feel well yeah. you don't stop it and no. i've this is now my life has changed and this is what i am now i'm probably not going to i'm sorry i'm not going to be stopping talking no. about it or, or walking they went oh, okay okay we've got that then oh, it's it's a healthy addiction and and i know i know enough people who are exactly the same because you it, you can't help it because it's not only just an exercise like oh i like running i like going to the gym or whatever that's lovely 
But with walking, you're getting everything else in it. I mean, obviously running, you do get everything else in it as well. You've got the scenery. Um, there's something about walking at that particular pace or in that particular hill or that particular field. Everything that you see. I talk with my, my trail buddy, Laura, who mentioned quite a lot. You know, we are completely crackers about taking photographs of things. You, you can't help it. You, like you say, you get completely absorbed. So if you could walk with anyone, anywhere and ask them anything, who would that be? Where would you go? Who would that person be? What would you ask them? I think I think I would work, walk with Holst actually because he was so lovely. He was such a nice man. He was he wasn't very well. Um, he he he's the composer of the Planet Suite, very famous piece of music. You know the Mars of bringing a war. Oh, it's so on. lovely. I I replayed it when you told me about him, and Isn't and it is just yeah, it's amazing. He's he he wrote lots of music. He's known for that, but he he wrote many many wonderful pieces of music. Mm-hmm. But he was he was quite frail, but he loved to walk, and that's also interests me. He had asthma, so he played the trombone. Oh, eighteen seventy. I'll start again. He was born <laughs> in eighteen seventy four, yeah, and he died in nineteen thirty four, right. and he was always quite sickly, um, and he had asthma, and when he was a young boy, and he started playing the trombone to help cure his asthma. And this was kind of pioneering at the time. Um, and he and he had very bad eyesight and he was short-sighted and he was shy and he was so sweet. But he was also very funny and he was a uh, vegetarian, uh, which nobody was really in the sort radical, of... Radical, yeah. Was very radical. He went used to go to uh, Indian restaurants. There was one or two Indian restaurants in London and he would go to them and people said, are you strange? Why are you going to eat this funny food? Uh, again, quite thinking with now, uh, that's quite amazing. He um, he loved to travel. He was very inspired by Hinduism. Um, he was extremely um, sensitive to the desires and needs of, of, of foreigners, shall we say. So he wasn't the kind of empire, you know, way of looking at Indians or or other cultures. Yeah, yeah. He respected them. He really respected their cultures. He would he learned Hinduism so he could be more sensitive to the librettos for which he was writing the music. I mean, how many composers would do that, really? Um, he learned Greek because he wanted to understand the Greek language um, so he could write his piece called The Hymn of Jesus. So, you know, he was extremely sensitive and um, and he absolutely loved walking. He sometimes suffered from depression, I think, which happens to a lot of people, as we know. Um, and he, I think it would have been nice to know his gentleness I would have liked to have known about and also mm. his he did apparently he would laugh sometimes uncontrollably and that seems strange to me to have this kind of combination of um factors in his personality yeah. or facets of his personality so I think he would have been very interesting but I think I would have had to be very gentle with him yeah. he's very timely and I, as I say I'm quite tall so I would have tried to just lure him out of himself and to talk a little about himself because he was extremely modest as well um and i think that would have been nice and also i would love to have asked him what's it like having music in your head as a composer yeah is that a nightmare sometimes yeah and i'm sure that's why he walked because a lot of these people that have you know geniuses and, and people that really really real thinkers and famous people that have invented stuff it turns out that they all walked because that's pretty much yeah. all you could do at the time for recreation. There wasn't huge amounts going on at that time. And I think it and, it and it just shows, doesn't it, how much it frees your mind from what is going on in there. It switches everything off and allows everything to be a bit pure, a bit more pure. And and, I, and, and also,
also, as I said before, you know, it's an amazing catalyst for creativity. Um, and out of those walks, I'm sure, came another piece of music, for example, in his case. Yeah, absolutely. And I think because there's something about the movement, isn't there? There's, I've realised yes. that, again, because I, I've got one chapter in my book where I talk about famous walkers in history. I mean, you couldn't possibly list them all, but um, that there are so many people who've, who've walked, you know, I mean, from Jesus to, you know, sort of um, right through history, there, there are people who've walked and, and so Charles Darwin was one, I think he, yeah, I mean, mm. huge, huge, um, um, great figures in history that have found taken comfort from it. Um, and I don't think I really appreciated that actually, but there's something about the rhythm of walking and the way that, you know, they say for writers, for example, take your, take your story for a walk. Um, and of course, actually you do find, I mean, I, I certainly make connections with nature or make connections yeah, with life, do. which I, which I never would, if I just sat in my, and looked out the window, I don't think I'd have half the thoughts that I do. No, you have to be fully connected with it, don't you? So, oh, it's just an amazing amazing but i just can't every I, I bought i bought somebody it straight away just went uh this is a great book uh, it's arriving in your letterbox <laughs> a couple of days. but it, it, it really is lovely and yeah like you say there's so many connections so it's available as you say it's available on amazon but um i, I will put the link of where they can buy it where you get a bit more from it they also get the color pictures so that's and it's signed correct Yes, absolutely yep. right. I've got this new thing now. I can I gift wrap it either for you or for a friend because I think the idea at the moment in lockdown to somebody to get something through the post that's got oh, a bit of gift wrapping on it, even if it's for yourself. If you want me to, yeah. you just say just gift wrap it for me, Amelia, because I started doing that obviously for Christmas, and then yeah. I sent one a couple out last week, and I just did it anyway, and I got a nice message saying, "Oh, you sent Lovely. me a present." Yeah, <laughs> and actually, it's just nice for me to do it really. So, oh. um, and it really is a present. It's just it is it is a complete present of a book. So anybody listening to this, you need to just go out and get yourself a copy. And it doesn't even matter if you don't read it all in one go. You know, over a short period of time, you can just dip in and dip out, and you know, go in one diary entry. Oh, it's just so lovely. I mean, you have to read it all through from the beginning to the end. But um, I'm just finding it really, really lovely. So thank you for sending me it because it, it really has. Uh, yeah, it's just given me so much pleasure and. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you as well, Amelia. So thank you so much for coming on Stepping Out. I really appreciate it. And I'm going to go off and read your book now in bed. Um, but in the meantime, you've agreed to read one of your favourite passages from the book. So whenever you're ready, if you want to say why you love this particular piece, um, and then I'll just leave it to you. So thank you very much and I hope we get to chat again soon. Thank you so much. I've really appreciated you taking the time to interview me and I've loved uh, being on your show and I wish you lots of luck with your podcast because, it, as I say, walking is a, a great thing. So uh, do contact, people are allowed to contact you to ask to be on your show, I guess. So uh, yes. listen to the show and contact you and I, I can't I can't uh, rate it high enough. So thank you very much. Oh, thank so you I very much. Thank you. I'm reading chapter 54 and it's called Extraction and it's a, it's a winter chapter, uh, 14th of December it actually was, but I, I've chosen this one because I think in a fairly concise way, hopefully it gives a, an idea of what I'm trying to do in the book. And it's a little bit of a sadder um, chapter because there is a funeral involved. But again, I think lockdown now, lots of people are having to deal with uh, the harder side of life. So um, I wanted to choose one that perhaps was a little bit more sensitive to what's going on at the moment. So extraction, 14th of December. 
We have just returned from a short trip to Vienna to deliver Christmas presents to friends. Vienna is a gorgeous city, but the hustle and bustle of the metropolis are enjoyable only in small quantities. I feel very much in need of my walk today. It is sunny and surprisingly warm at 6.6 .6 degrees centigrade. I managed to leave before the clock strikes noon. Several great tits are skimming around the silver birch and pine trees by the church. More join in and I watch their shadows on the surface of the road. Suddenly, I hear the crystal sound of a single trumpet player playing a mournful tune. I turn and look through the old iron gate and into the churchyard. A funeral is taking place. The trumpet player's simple plaintive melody rings out in the cold, clear December air. I look on discreetly. The player controls his playing beautifully, reducing the volume in the final phrase to a quiet pianissimo. The mourners stand with their heads bowed. Two minutes of silence follows. I feel the bittersweet pain of the witnessing of the end of a life, sad for the mourners and naturally fearful of my own mortality. I feel that after witnessing the funeral, the proximity of death will undoubtedly inform this walk one way or another. I hear a noisy crow squawking and my mind thinks of carrion. Death and dying always seem closer in the winter months. Everywhere there is evidence of things dying back. In summer, life is full and prolific and ever increasing, but the winter speaks of decay and diminution. My eyes alight on a small piece of wood, slender and tapering at the bottom, and on top a knuckle making the whole resemble a handcrafted wooden nail. It looks exactly like a nail that might be used to nail down a coffin lid. Or is it a wedge of wood to hold a simple locking place? Or was it formed by nature? I think of all the potential past histories of the piece of wood. It does not bother me that I do not know and cannot know the right answer. I photograph a bracken leaf, one half brown, one half green, life in death and death in life. I move from the dark shadow of the forest to the bright sunshine of an open area with stunning views across the valley, from cold into warmth. It will be easy to be morose, but a small patch of seed heads backlit by the sun and swaying gently in the breeze delights me and restores my sense of perspective. I have changed and my reason for being now is not to be defined by my profession, by working, by living and seeing, by extracting from life every drop of beauty, to seek the essence of life much as a perfumier does. I want to siphon off beauty and pour it into my life. By way of a perfect example, as I cross the bridge over a mountain stream, the sun shines brightly through the tall, slender pine trees and the lights on four red, jewel-like wild berries. I photograph them, taking time to admire their perfect oval beauty. A few moments later, the earth has revolved and the sun no longer shines on them. In that fraction of time, I was there and I mined the moment. At the highest point, I paused to survey the scenery and most especially the sky, a symphony of blue-grey and white. Tiny white ovulates and magrete-like clouds dot the sky in the most opportune places, floating magically over the brooding outline of the Caravancan mountain range. A golden sun appears too bright to look at. The day is growing cold. I quicken my pace and make up time. The light begins to fade and the sky turns from first crimson and then gold. I pass the church once more and bow my head in respect to the recently deceased. When I return home, Katie tells me that the funeral was for a local man 
very well known to my new family in Austria. In fact, they all remember him as a small boy. He was only in his early 60s. This knowledge adds one more note of mournful poignancy to the day. I thoroughly enjoyed that chat with Amelia. She is so good at communicating her experience of nature into words and her life has been really interesting so far as I'm sure you'll agree. You can hear such enthusiasm for her projects and I feel very lucky to talk with people who have found their passion in life inspiring for us all. I have placed all the relevant links in the podcast description and also Amelia has sent me a 10% discount link for the book. So thank you so much for that too Amelia and of course for joining me. I love knowing that you're all listening to the show and really appreciate you subscribing as well so you can receive an alert to hear future episodes. If you enjoyed the show, please share with your friends and family so others can benefit from my lovely guests. Just a little heads up for the future. Soon we'll all be out of our baggy jama bottoms and back in the world properly and it couldn't come soon enough, could it? So what better way to present yourself to other humans than to wear a lovely, soft, organic cotton t-shirt or hoodie or vest from my new clothing collection. I've designed them with nature in mind and they all have a slogan relating to stepping out. If you want to check it out, take a look in the show notes for the link and get yourself noticed in these lovely, colourful and breathable tops. I'm loving this journey and as Amelia said, if you or someone you know would like to be on the show, do get in touch at steppingoutthepodcast at gmail.com. For now, I wish you health and happiness with a sprinkle of walking and I'll see you soon.